Okay, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 40 in the Bible. If you're, you have a pew Bible, that's page 1,119. 1,119. I preached on Isaiah 1 last week. Um, I'm going to do 40 this week, then we'll go back and do 7 and 8 and then move forward. Here's, here's what you need to know about the structure of the book of Isaiah. It's, it's kind of a long book. It's 66 chapters. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. It might be the second longest. I can't remember now. Um, it breaks down basically into two books. Chapters 1 through 39 is when Isaiah is actually alive. And it's, it's basically the, hey, you don't want to do this. Let's turn back to God so that you don't have to go into exile. And then the answer of the people he prophesies to is essentially no. <laughs> so then, in chapter 39, basically, um, King Hezekiah dies, and we know from the front of the book that Isaiah doesn't outlive Hezekiah's reign. And so there's, there's two people that die, and then from chapters 40 to 66 is the book that's written for later. Okay? Now, um, Chapter 39 is important because there's this narrative that happens with King Hezekiah where he gets really sick and he's going to die. And God sends Isaiah to go talk to him and he says, listen, you're going to die. And Hezekiah is um, distraught by that news and he prays. And he he prays to God and he says, "Um, I don't want to die. I've tried to serve you. I would please help, right? And so before Isaiah even gets out of the building, he has to go back. God's like, go back and tell him he's going to (laughs) live. Right? So Isaiah goes back, tells him he's going to live for 15 more years, and um, some other things, basically. And then right after that, it says, when he gets better, um, the kingdom of Babylon sends an envoy to congratulate him on his good health. Which apparently they did for kings in those days. And so Hezekiah gets kind of stricken with pride, and he takes the, this envoy from Babylon through all over the kingdom, showing him all the stuff he's accomplished and his forefathers has accomplished in his life, including like all of his treasures, all the gold, all the whatever. Because he's just, he's impressing them, and they're from a long way off, right? And so Isaiah shows up at the end of this thing, and he's like, he's like, who are they, and what were they, what were you doing there? He's like, oh, they're from a country that's way, way, way far away. Um, he didn't, Hezekiah didn't actually know that in like a, you know, a hundred years, they were going to be the biggest power in the world, right? Um, and so he says, well, I showed him everything and whatever. And, and Hezekiah says this in response, or Isaiah says this in response to that. Hezekiah, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the... Okay, and then these next verses are really important. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. So so chapter 39 ends with two legacies. One is Hezekiah's legacy. Yes, my kids are going to have parts of their bodies chopped off so that they can be the slaves of kings in another country, and everything everyone has ever worked for for generations past is all going to be lost, but it's going to go okay for me, so we're okay. Right? Now, there is, some, there is something I have to say about this. I'm sorry. Um, but I think there's a lot of people in the United States right now that think like that. 
they look at some of the cultural trajectories that we're on, economic and social and so on, and they think, you know what? It's not going to be like it was. But, you know, I think I'm going to outlive it. I think think the good times are going to make it for the rest of my, my life. And all I have to say to you about that is, a minute ago, you thought Hezekiah was a small-minded hypocrite. 40 seconds ago. And how many of us think that way? I got a house. Right? Don't be that person. There's a second legacy. Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesied that to Hezekiah, Isaiah knew that he'd prophesied the exile. That the people of Israel were going to lose their country, their land, their temple, their city, everything. And they were going to get dragged off seven, eight hundred miles to a place, and they were going to live among a pagan people, and they're not, they weren't going to have a, a cultural identity that was centered around any... I mean, they were, they were going to be... They were going to be exiles and refugees. And what Isaiah did was, he sought the Lord, and he wrote down things that would help those people in that generation. Do you see... He looked forward. He said, there's great misfortune coming. What can I do right now? How can I sacrifice so that these future generations would be helped by what I do right now, even if everything's going to fall apart? Those are just very different legacies. And chapters 40 through 66 are that legacy. Isaiah writing a book, most of which was for people who would live 100 years or more after he died. But he heard the word of the Lord for them and he wrote it down so that they would have something in the worst moment of their nation's history. And chapter 40 comes right there, okay? Chapter 40 is the first words of this second book for these people. You're going to want to follow along because it's going to be like 10 minutes of reading, okay? Because reading the Bible is the sermon. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows upon them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. 
He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? What was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We're ten minutes in already. We can just stop there. I mean, that's two sermons, right? It's not my style. <coughs> my wife is three days into a five-day away from family and kids holiday in Denver. Yesterday, she spent most of the day on a microbrewery tour. <laughs> and I'm five weeks into being sick, and I'm, I would be tired if I didn't still have four adults at my house. Last night as I was sitting down to watch the Big Ten Championship, a friend um, from this church called and said, would you please pray for us because my wife just heard her mom just suddenly died. 8.30 last night, they, you know, 8 o'clock they got the news. Would you, you, know, would you pray for us? Um, 
when, when that kind of stuff happens, when you just are flat wearied by life, or when something really big like that happens where you require a lot of comfort. I mean, think about the passage. What's, the, what's this passage about? It's about? It starts with comfort, and it ends with strength of the weary, right? That's what it's for. It's for tired, comfort-needing people, right? When that happens, you, you need something that's not wishy-washy. You need something that's solid. There's a lot of people who talk positive and who offer comfort that's thin, and one of the, what this passage is about is that God really wants us to have the comfort that we need and to receive the strength and the weariness that happens. But it's, it's, it's got to be the right way. It's got to be founded upon something really solid. And people don't normally, <laughs> don't normally build their comfort and find their strength in that which is so solid that it's what God gives. And when the first thing God led Isaiah to write to give to a people who would be refugees and weary and broken and lost, the first words were, comfort, comfort my people. Those of you who go to this church know this sermon's going to be really hard for me. Comfort, and that isn't really my wheelhouse, but it's God's. It's God's. I've got to find a way to emote. <clears throat> now, um, there are three things that are really important in this passage that are in the negative, where God explicitly is saying, listen, don't turn to this for your comfort or for your strength and weariness. Don't do that. Right? The first is... Um, that comfort is not in peace and security in and of itself. There's a lot of people in this room that are probably like, you know, Nick, I love the comfort thing. I know people are hurting, whatever, but, you know, I'm doing okay. And my answer is great. That's awesome. Don't be a Hezekiah. Don't confuse happiness for blessing or security with true safety. Chapter 39 ought to be clear, but... It's very easy to put your hope in your security or put your hope in your wealth or put your hope in that which you think protects you um, or to just enjoy the relative peace and prosperity around you and to become as shallow and small-minded as Hezekiah ended up in that passage. And you need to realize, in the Bible, Hezekiah is thought of as a pretty good king. You might be a pretty good person, <laughs> right? Be careful. Your, your, your comfort and your hope and your strength and weariness really can't be in any kind of peace and security you have. The, if, if that will always lead to a profound selfishness. Right? The second is um, comfort is not found in counterfeit gods. Right? There's clearly a theme of idolatry in this passage, right? Um, there's this great passage from Jonah. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That should be terrifying, right? It's not about like, you know, God's going to get you. worship idols, God is going to get you. No. Those who cling to idols and won't let them go, they forfeit the grace and the help and weariness and the comfort that could be theirs. Right? It says this in 1820. To whom then will you compare God? Imagine 
What, what image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such offerings selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you, do you realize that's a joke? Right? He says, listen, you want a God that's stable and strong. Listen, when you build an idol, you, you go and you look for a carpenter <laughs> that will nail the thing down so it won't fall over. How stable is that God? Right? If you have to find a carpenter to keep your, your God upright, it's, you might have an issue with stability. Right? It's meant to be funny, but here's one of the things that we need to realize. You can look at that, and you can realize that an idol with hammered gold on it is probably preposterous as the God who exists if there's a God, right? But one of the things that I think that we need to recognize is that idols grow in sophistication. And because you can notice that some idol from 3,000 years ago is probably an idol, doesn't mean that you are identifying the counterfeit gods of today and are free of them. Um, and one of the places we have to get to if we're really going to be able to trust God is we can't just get to the point where we recognize sins as sins. That's never going to lead to holiness, okay? You can read the Bible, and you can see God disapproving of certain things, and you can say, oh, those things are sins. I probably shouldn't do them, because if I do, I might feel bad, or God might be— Listen, that's never going to give you the kind of motivation you need. Until you see that thing as ugly, foolish, stupid, and ridiculous, you're never going to have the strength to get rid of it, to, to turn from the thing. Right? Until, the whole reason he says, guys, think about this. An idol is just a little piece of metal that you banged a little gold on. It's ridiculous. It's preposterous. You see, the, the implication for us is, is that the other things we turn to and look to, until we look at them from God's perspective and see them as preposterous, as hopes for comfort or strength and weariness, we're never going to be able to go, you know what, I don't need that. And listen, there are some things you won't ever totally see as preposterous. But you can see them both as tempting and preposterous. And you need the second. But the example for me is like pornography, okay? I don't look at pornography. I don't have pornography habits. I don't flip, flip, flip out. But listen, I'm a dude. I still want to look at it, okay? I can't stop that for some reason, okay? And that's in there, and I don't know how to get it out, okay? I'm, I'm trying. I don't know how to get that out. At the same time, though, I can believe what God says, that it's ridiculous, that it's damaging, that it's the destruction of the daughters of other men and them in their own right, that it will kill me and it'll kill you, that it's, it's one of the great plagues of my culture and just destroying manhood among the men I live with, and etc. right? And I can have both of those, and if this is strong enough, it can deliver me from this. I mean, the Bible talks about a war of the flesh and the spirit inside of us, Right? Of our, our, our sinful tendency in our, We have to get to the point Where we see idols as ridiculous And as idols get increasingly sophisticated We have to get a little more sophisticated In our ability to see them Or we'll look at other people Make fun of them And we'll be just Mired in them ourselves And totally oblivious to it It's in my pocket The other day, Nicole was waving around her, her Benjamin that she got one of the new ones. I'm not actually allowed to carry $100 bills. Um, the last time I had $100 bills in my wallet, I was duck hunting in North Dakota, and I think I dropped my wallet in the lake. And there were four of them in it. It was very painful. Um, 
<coughs> but apparently Nicola has, is responsible enough. And the new ones, as of October, look like this. They have like a new strip on them, and they have like a little face in there, and like a whole bunch of new things. Because the minters of money in America recognize that if, if our money doesn't become increasingly sophisticated, the counterfeiters are going to become increasingly sophisticated, and they're going to get behind, right? And the people that designed this stuff, top counterfeiters and top money designers can see a counterfeit a mile away. Right? Did you ever see the movie Catch Me If You Can? Where the guy's like the counterfeiter and like, the FBI finally pulls him in and is like, what's wrong with this? He's like, oh, well, there's this and this and this and this and this. Because he was a top counterfeiter. Right? But I guarantee you the guy who designed the money could look at a counterfeit and be like, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, wrong. Right? And that's because they're sufficiently sophisticated because they were part of the founding of the thing. Now listen, I guarantee you God is not impressed with the counterfeit gospels. He designed the original one. He is the original one. And so if we can learn to see the counterfeits like he sees them, they won't be that intriguing to us. They'll look really silly. But if not, we're not going to be able to pick them out. But I want you to know something that's really important about the, about the gospel, about the message of Christ. God has built certain characteristics into the gospel that if you understand the gospel, they will be dead giveaways to counterfeit gospels. But here's the problem. You have to actually know the gospel. And if you play around with religion and you come to church a little bit and you're not really serious about it, uh, listen, God, God, I mean, God loves you. You're wonderful, okay? But listen, you won't, here's, here's the liability of that. You're not going to be able to spot counterfeits. And there's a lot of things that are not the gospel that will seem really plausible to you. And you'll be like, yeah, that makes total sense. And if you're in that phase of your faith right now, the best thing that you can do besides get serious about learning something about the gospel is find somebody that has, that's really good at what the Bible calls discernment. Telling the counterfeits from each other, from the real thing, and connect yourself with that person. And help them, let them teach you, and help them help you determine what those are. It's, there are people in this church that are really good at that, and they will let you into their life, and you need to find them. Right? The third one is this, that you can't take your comfort from humanity. Not you, not any nations, and not supermen or superwomen that are super smart that are going to engineer a new future for us. Okay? Um, you and I are, I mean, how are you going to turn to you when you need comfort? Seriously? Right? The whole point of the idea of needing comfort and being weary is that you're out of resources. So are you really going to want to turn to you when that happens? You might have a misunderstanding of you if that's the case. And I would encourage you to think about getting rid of that. And you need to realize that all nations go to dust. Some of them have better runs than others. <laughs> but they all turn to dust. And if you put your hope in them, it's not going to work. In fact, it's one, of, it's one of those first and second things. The biggest way to destroy a nation is to put your hope in it. And the best way to preserve a nation is not to put your hope in it and to put your hope in God. There's, listen, that's not political. There's no policy statement attached to that. It's just a fact, biblically speaking. And lastly, listen, the new generation of whiz kids isn't going to save us. Okay? In every culture, in, the, in virtually every culture of the 20th century that gave itself over to the central control of whiz kids, millions of people ended up dying. Okay? The, 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 the track record of that one isn't actually really that good. The idea that we're going to find a group of really intelligent people that are going to save us isn't probably going to work. It, it never has. There's this um, internet phenomenon right now. Um, called Cicada 3301, which apparently nobody really knows where these puzzles have come from, but they've posted these puzzles which are like um, 
that have clues in them that will point you to the next puzzle. And in order to, um, in order to solve them, you have to know about um, polynomial ciphers, cyberpunk, the dark net, Maya numerology, and the Victorian cult, among other things. And the organization who nobody really knows who's in it says, has said that what they're really after is they're looking for a group of highly intelligent individuals. Right? And no one knows if it's a terrorist cell or the CIA recruiting or what. Okay? But here's the thing. If they think they're going to find highly intelligent people who can break codes and those people are going to save the world, they're not as intelligent as they think they are. Even though I would love to be able to crack codes really awesome, wouldn't you? (laughs) He says, this is what God says. He says, he, that is the Lord, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Okay, so if we're not supposed to put our hope in our own security and safety, and if we're not supposed to put it in counterfeit gods, then we're supposed to see what they are. If we're not supposed to put it in men and women, then what do we put it in? And here's the thing. It's like the simplest sentence in the Bible, but it is the most important sentence in this chapter. Maybe the most important sentence in the book of Isaiah, and it encapsulates the message of the whole Bible. It's in verses um, 9 to 11. Okay, notice the repetition in the first part. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. Why? So more people can hear, right? You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice and shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. So get really high and shout really loud, right? To maximize who hears, right? Say to the towns of Judah pretty simple sentence, right? Here is your God, which actually isn't a very good translation. Um, But I'll get to that in a minute. And then it says this. See, now notice the repetition. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. What is that? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The NIV translates it, here's your God, which is, it's not a wrong translation. It's not, not particularly helpful. Because, the, because if I, okay, let's say we were walking through an art museum and I was like, here's the pointillism room, right? You'd be like, oh yeah, there it is, okay. But if I said, okay, look at this painting. Now listen, I want you to behold this painting. Right? Now you might be like, what's the archaic words, dude? But you would know I'm saying something different than, oh, here's that. Right? If I said, here's, here's this painting, you'd go, oh, nice. Okay, well, let's go to the next one. But if I say, look, look, I want you to behold this painting. It's different. It's a look at it and study it. I, look at it until you really appreciate what it is. Don't miss what's there. There's something there that you won't see just by glancing at it. You've got to look more intently on it. It's, a, it's an imperative. It's a do this. Look with a certain intention, right? That's what he's saying. So he says, comfort, comfort my people. Those who renew their strength put their hope in God. All of that is built on one sentence. Behold your God. That is, he's saying, if you will see God for God, the result is going to be comfort and strength and weariness. It's going to be rooted in that. And the good news is is that that's not just a general statement. Like, believe in God. You'll feel better. 
That's absolutely not the message. Of this, I mean, it is, but it's uh, that would be kind of like Captain Vague. You know, here's your cape, right? It, it's a lot more specific than that, and it's specific in three three ways in this passage, and they're all in those verses. One is there's three things to behold, to really look at and see them for what they are. One is God's sovereignty. Now, this is important because a lot of contemporary American Christians do not take comfort from God's sovereignty. The concept embarrasses them because they have trouble realizing how God can be totally morally good and bad things can happen, and they want to solve that by diminishing the concept of God's rulership over all things and his absolute sovereignty. Listen, there's a lot lot we could say about that. But what this passage claims is that understanding God's absolute sovereignty, and make no mistake, read the passage again, Almost the whole passage focuses on this one. On all the things that aren't sovereign, counterfeit idols, your own self-security, other human beings, princes and rulers, none of that stuff is sovereign. Don't put your hope in that. There is one who is sovereign, king, providential, ruler, all-powerful over all things. In fact, there's a, there's a verse in there that's a little, where he says, he weighs all the nations and they are worthless to him. That's actually not a very elegant translation, is it? The, if you read that passage, it's kind of, he's not saying no humans are worth anything to God. He's bigger. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you compare value and weight, compare the weight of God in his sovereign, majestic kingliness and all nations of human beings accumulated, it's like blowing some dust off a cylinder in comparison. The weight of God in his sovereignty is meant to fill us with comfort and with strength and weariness. And there's two ways in which that that makes good news. It's because God has two other characteristics along with his sovereignty. And one is that God is a giver. God is enormously generous and loving. Like, that's how he— So the question is, okay, God is totally sovereign. How does God use his sovereignty? Right? Because you've got to remember, the, in the Bible, God, God is the same God. In one place he says, listen, and listen, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, who made the blind blind? Wasn't it me? Do you remember that from three weeks ago when we talked about Psalm 139? And yet, and yet, what is Jesus known for? Healing blindness, right? One of the signs of the kingdom, God's redemptive purposes, him undoing the curse, him breaking down his own right judgment on us is that Jesus comes in and he heals the blind and he heals the deaf and he heals the lame and he sets the captive free and he does all that stuff. And see, this is written to people that God has sent into exile. He called Babylon. He says it explicitly in Isaiah. I called Babylon to come and destroy your city. I did that. And then he says to those people who are now refugees and foreigners in the country, he says, he says, comfort from me. He's going to give comfort. And the way that he is giving in that way is that he's like a shepherd. Now, listen— one of the things we need to understand about this that will make this work a little better, if, you're, if it, it's hard for you, is that God, God's actions of justice and wrath and his actions of love and compassion and shepherdliness are not proportional to each other in relationship to our deserts, what we deserve. Okay? With all respect to Buddhists and Hindus, 
and their right to believe what they, they are convinced is true and my right to persuade them otherwise and vice versa, you should thank your lucky stars that the, that the universe does not run on karma. Okay? That, that good, goodness and blessing and curse and bad things happen in proportion to what we deserve. That, that is not what the Bible teaches about God who has... God, in God, these things function in proportion to their place in his personhood. And so, God is never more harsh in judgment than is deserved. And he is enormously more generous than is deserved. In proportion, they are proportioned to his character, not to what we deserve. And so God's capacity to be compassionate and loving and helpful to the weary way outstrips the justice and discipline that we deserve. And so therefore, it does make sense, even if we are in a situation under the direct discipline of God, to turn to God for comfort in it. I think that's one of the signs that your parenting is going well when you have to punish your kid and they ask you for advice about how to deal with your punishment. If you realize that, then the fact that God has a whole personality and he's not this two-dimensional shallow sort of God that just does what you want him to and nothing else and the minute God is big, he's wild and he's terrifying. But when you add that he is the God who is a giver, and then he's specifically a giver because he's a shepherd, it changes things. I mean, th- Jesus is the one who sets the captives free, right? Okay, but let me, let me ask you this. Pastor Saeed, who is in the worst prison in Iran right now, has lost something like 50 or 60 pounds in the last month, is covered in fleas, is getting um, threatened by knife point, and is being denied his medication. Because he was a Christian, he was a Christian visiting Iran, right? What is what is he supposed to look to? A year now from his young family in Idaho, what what comfort is there for him? Right? If they kill him, he'll be with Jesus. Okay, great. Well, that's all of us, right? But in, is he? What's he supposed to look to? Right? And here's the, here's the issue: God's sovereignty. God is sovereign in that situation. And you need a doctrine of God's sovereignty and his givingness and his shepherdliness that, you're, that you can receive comfort through that truth if you're in that situation. And if you can, then when you lose your job, you'll be fine. And when your kid decides to be an idiot, you'll be fine. And when all kinds of your health goes bad or whatever, you'll be fine. And... The way God talks about him being sovereign is he says this, but this is what he's like in terms of, do you remember when he, the part where he says, here's my sovereignty. Every prince has an army, and he doesn't know the names of the people in his army. He brings out his host, right? That's what host means. It means army, right? Large group of things, right? He brings out his host, his army, and they, he doesn't know them, right? But, he, but what it says right after that, he says, now you look up i.e. at the stars, right? He says, that's my host. That's my army. I bring them forth. And then what does he say about them? I know every single one of their names. Right? And then he says, in this other part, he says, 
this is the kind of shepherd he's like. He doesn't even just leave it vague as shepherd. He says, this is the kind of shepherd. He's the kind of shepherd that like picks up little lambs that smell and that don't love him back and holds them close to his heart. Right? Listen, I don't know if you, have a, if you have a pet, but listen, your pets don't love you. Okay? I just want you to understand this. Right? When I come home from work and my dog wants to give me a kiss, it's not because he loves me. It's because he wants to taste what I had for lunch. And he wants to know if I've been holding out on him. It's one of the great disappointments of my life. Okay? I've had an easy life, I know. Um, but, but, you know, th- this is what the shepherd is like. He picks up these lambs and he carries them. In, and it says, there, I was at small group the other night and there was a, a girl there who doesn't go to, go to church, isn't a believer. And it was wonderful because our discussion was so much better because she was there. And she, she said, we were looking at Isaiah 1. She's like, listen, you say God is loving all you want in the New Testament, but like, this is all like actions and sacrifices and stuff. Like, if God wanted to be about love, why didn't he, why does he make all these external things and why doesn't he put that in the beginning? Which is a great question. It's a great question. And my response was, listen, the reason why you're asking that question is you haven't had um, the opportunity yet to read the, the whole Bible. And actually, all that stuff about love doesn't show up with Jesus. It shows up in the very first books of the Bible. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's quoting Deuteronomy. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's the heart of the law, is to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law is examples in different diverse situations of how you can love your neighbor. So love your neighbor as yourself is the fundamental heart of the law. He's quoting Leviticus. It's always been about love. The law was just extremely concrete examples, so you can't lie to yourself of exactly how you should do it 1,400 years before Christ in this particular cultural context. Right? But make no mistake, all of those commandments were outworkings of what God was calling loving your neighbor and loving him. It's always been like that. God has always been this kind of loving shepherd. And he is the one that can actually comfort, and he is the one who can actually help. Okay. We're almost out of time, and we still have half the sermon left. Okay, so, <coughs> um, do you remember when Mike Beresford was here a while back, and he said there's this church somewhere in America where, like, you get, he gets to a certain part in the sermon, and the pastor goes like this, and the whole congregation yells, so what? Right? If we do that in my small group, we'll get after, and I go like this, and everybody goes, so what? And then we, then we move towards application. Right? And there's two applications that it's important for us to take away from this passage, okay? The first is, is that this passage just really teaches that we need to realize that your way isn't hidden from God and that God's way isn't hidden from you. It's accessible. God's, the, the beholding your God, his sovereignty, his giving nature, his loving shepherdliness in a way that will comfort you and strengthen you when you're weary is not hidden from you. And your way isn't hidden from him. It's important to recognize. This is what it says in 27, 25, 27. To whom will you compare me and who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That's sovereignty, right? On the basis of that, he can offer this. Then why do you say, O Jacob... And complain with Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. You see what he's saying? He's, now, now think about this. They're in Babylon. <laughs> They're in exile. They're not in the city of God. 
There's no apparent activity of God in their life. They couldn't be more outside of the will of God, right? And yet, God goes, okay, well, time out. And so they're, so, so they're saying in their hearts and out loud, they're saying, God doesn't see me. God doesn't care about me. My way is totally disregarded by them. He doesn't even know what's going on in my life. I'm clearly outside of his interest because this is how my life is going. And you see what God says? He goes, okay, look, back up this truck with the beeps and everything. Like, hold on. Okay, let's go back to the doctrine of sovereignty. Is there anything I don't see? And anything I don't know? Okay, now, how can you say then, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God? People think that all the time when they're suffering. Do you remember what Hagar called God? Right? She's an Egyptian concubine. She was a jerk. Um, everybody was sitting in that situation, Sarah and Abraham and her, and like, she's out in the desert, um, starving to death, and her son's about to die because he doesn't have any water, and there, there's no hope, and she, she's crying, and an angel shows up and saves her life, and her son's life. And she calls God the one who sees me. Because she thought nobody saw her. And that's how the human heart responds to suffering. And God's response is, that's exactly why if you want comfort and you want strength, you have to behold your God and back the truck up to the doctrine of sovereignty and realize, I see you. There is no way hidden from me. There's nothing about you that God doesn't see. It doesn't matter how much outside of whatever you think you are. No matter how exiled you think you are. No matter how in the middle of the desert starving you are. It doesn't matter. Not Behold your God, the ultimately sovereign one. He sees it. And as a remedy to it, he has shown you his way. Think about that imagery. Every mountain will be brought down. Every valley made up. The whole thing will be flattened out and basically paved, right? And the whole world will see the glory of the Lord, right? Now, that passage has always bothered me because I'm like a mountain kayaking fishing guy. Like, the idea that there's not going to be topography in heaven is not my favorite idea, right? But that's not what this passage means, does it? It means there is an end, a place where God wants to take you. And there are all kinds of obstacles so that you can't see it. There's mountains and there's valleys and there's, there's places where you can fall and there's all this stuff in the way. And when God comes to show you his way, he's going to flatten it all out and you're going to be able to see it. And it's going to be so flat that everybody can see it at one time. His way is not going to be hidden. You're going to be able to see it. And one of the ways you're going to find your way back to him and find that your way isn't disregarded by your God is when you find his way. And in that way, his sovereignty protects it. His blessing is in it. And he shepherds you through it. It's not enough to realize that your way isn't hidden from God. You've got to realize that his way isn't hidden from you. You've got to get on it. And I know that can be confusing, but that's one of the reasons why he made it so plain. Three of the Gospels quote that passage about making a path straight for the Lord. This is Mark's version. It's written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's a different passage than this one. We'll talk about that another time. But this is here. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Right? And then what was John's whole job? God says, there's no, in, in one of the Gospels, there's no, Jesus said this, there's nobody greater on earth than, than John the Baptist. 
besides Jesus. And John had one job to say, Jesus is the one. To say, he's the one. Follow him. He is the embodiment of the way. He's the one who lives out the way. And he's the one that has completely fulfilled that way perfectly and performed it for you. And if you follow him and you trust him, it's going to work. And then in John 14, what does John say? What does Jesus say about himself? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way God made the path straight and flat and so everybody could see it is that he embodied it in a person that we can see and understand and follow and know and believe in and trust and learn from and be formed by. Because otherwise it would be fairly ethereal theology we're all trying to put together, right? Knowing God is tough. But he took all that and he kind of squished it into Jesus. And we still got to do some working out, but there's, Je- there's always Jesus there. Right? Second thing is this. i to go through this kind of quick here. And that is that um, the God who is not weary lifts up and comforts the weary who hope in him. Right? I mean, that's kind of the point Jesus makes. He's like, listen, you guys need comfort, you're weary. Let's just make one thing really clear. And remember, what doctrine does this go back to? The doctrine of God's sovereignty again. On what basis can we know God doesn't get tired? Right? He says, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, by nature, God is the everlasting God. He created everything. Do you think he gets tired easily? Or do you think his logic is too simple when he was, had a complicated enough reason that he could create all the scientific complexities of all creation? Probably not. You're not going to have a resource problem with God. Right? And so he says, on that basis, he gives strength to the weary and increases. He's, you, see the, you see the contrast there? God doesn't get weary, but he does give strength to the weary. And then he says, even youth are tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. Meaning, everybody does. Right? The least likely to do. Therefore, everybody does. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now think about that phrase. They will renew what? They will renew their strength. Do you see how that's not in the passive? It's not a fundamentally mystical idea. It's a pretty straightforward idea. When you take your hope out of counterfeit gods and you put your hope in God, that itself will create hope. When you put your hope in God, that itself unloads the false gods and takes away your hope in yourself, puts it in one that's trustworthy, and that itself produces strength. And in addition to that, God spiritually gives strength. And so... You walk and not be faint, and you'll run and not be weary. Right? So here's, here's what we've got to do. One, you, we've got to spot counterfeits, and we've got to take our faith out of counterfeits. You've got to be able to see them and know them for what they are, and not put your trust in them. And God does a lot teaching us what counterfeits look like, negatively, and he does a lot about teaching us what the real thing looks like, positively. And if we attend to that and we behold it, we'll know it and we'll spot these things. And people in our lives, if we have the right people in our lives, will help us. And the second thing is, you've got to behold your God. That's the whole passage, right, on that line. Look at him and see him for what he is. 
And the main way God has made that possible for you is Jesus. Remember how it said, when all the paths are made straight, what will happen? The glory of the Lord will be revealed, right? That's what it says. Now listen to how, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, Let the light shine out of the darkest darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, the embodiment, the incarnation of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Think about that. Do you see how those verses are arguing the exact same thing as Isaiah 40? He's saying God wants us to know him. He wants us to see his knowledge and his power and his glory. And all of that was encapsulated in the face of Jesus. And when that comes home to roost, what happens? We who are weak, weary vessels in need of comfort have a power in us that is all-surpassing and is not from us. Because God said a long time before that, those who put their hope in the Lord renew their strength. Let's pray. Father, it's, um, some of these truths are hard to grapple with, but um, we recognize that um, this is why you speak in the scriptures. This is why you've given us revelation, because if we had to derive everything true about you, we'd be here a long while and probably be wrong on most of our points. And so you have spoken and said that you are the sovereign one and that you are the giving and loving one and that you are the shepherd who holds those close to their heart. And if we put our trust in you, if we behold you for who you are, if we hope in you, we'll receive the strength and the comfort we need. Help us to take our hope and our trust out of the counterfeit gods and help us to put it in you and pray that you'd strengthen us. And help us to see that as the heart and soul of Christmas and the incarnation of Jesus, that what we need to see about your straight path and your glory revealed is embodied in Christ. And the more we know him, the more we will know the way, and the more we'll be strengthened in it. We pray in his name. Amen.